Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that every word of it has been breathed out by you. God, we pray that as we come and uh, hear what this passage has to say to us today, Lord, may we not have hard hearts. May we not have stubborn hearts. God, I pray that we would have soft hearts, open hearts, ready to hear what you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, sorry, there you go. There's uh, nothing quite like death to make you think about life. And yet, it's not just in the, in the intellectual sense that death makes us think about life, is it? The well-worn phrase, I saw my life flash before my eyes. When a person has a brush with death and they you know, narrowly escape dying, you know, that, that phrase exists because coming so close to the edge of the abyss, that engages us in, in a way that we don't normally experience every day, does it? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea and the feeling that one day we will just stop breathing. Now, even if you haven't had a brush with death, uh, you can surely relate to the concept, right? You can surely relate to this idea that being so close to thinking about even that, that moment causes us to reflect on our lives. I mean, this is why inspiration pages and quotes abound about death and, and life and finding real life. A popular one attributed to a poet named E.E. E. Cummins is... Unbeing dead isn't being alive. You may have heard that one before. If not, there you go. You can have that for free. Unbeing dead is not the same as being alive. You see what he's, what he's getting at? In other words, just because you're breathing, just because you're thinking and moving and, you know, paying your taxes, it doesn't mean you're really living. And so thinking about death forces us to think about these things, about what it means to be really living, to have real life. And our passage this morning makes us ask the question about where real life indeed does come from and what that means for us. As Roger asked earlier, how does believing that God alone gives life, both now and forever, how does that change the way we live? This morning, uh, I'm not going to give you specific points as we work our way through the passage, as is my usual want, but we will work our way just walk, walking through it, so I encourage you to have your Bibles open as we do that. But as we do that, there are three key things that I think are crucial in this passage that I would love for you to keep your ear out for as we work through it, and that is faith, peace, and life. Faith, peace, and life. You may have heard of the other trifecta of Faith, hope, and love. Well, the trifecta of 2 Kings 4, I think, is faith, peace, and life. So as we work our way through this passage with our Bibles open, let us come with ears to hear and hearts open ready. 
So here we are in verse 8. We're introduced to a new character in Shunem, which is a town located on the southwest slope uh, of uh, of the hill of Moray. And there is a wealthy woman in this town. And she, like the poor widow in our last passage from last week, uh, she is unnamed throughout the book of Kings, as are many characters in Kings, like, for example, their husbands. We We don't hear what their names are. Now, the original Hebrew in this simply says great, uh, which has been translated into wealthy in the ESV. Uh, but the, the word great there might indicate to us that actually there's, there's probably more to this woman than just simply her being wealthy. Other uh, English translations translate it as well-to-do or, or prominent. And this is worth us keeping in mind, because if you're anything like me, you might be a little bit skeptical of rich or important people being able to have genuine faith. I don't know, I might be the only one. But, you know, that's not without reason. I, I think sometimes we, we rightly have a bit of a, a, a caution there. That's because Scripture just has so much to say and has significant warnings against wealth and the, and the lure of money. And especially in Jesus' teaching, we see that. You cannot serve both God and money. But regardless of that, the Bible never says that the the wealthy aren't capable of genuine faith. And so uh, here we find yet another example. We see here that this Shunammite woman, she showed great hospitality to Elisha, providing him with food while he went about on his prophetic journeys around Israel. And she was probably one of the few who actually feared the Lord in Israel at this time. Perhaps there's, here is a glimmer of hope. We've seen for so long, over so many weeks, how Israel has just, has just been heading down into the sewerage. But yet here is a woman who has genuine faith. So much so that she decided to make the hospitality of Elisha just a little bit more permanent. In verse 9, she recognizes that Elisha's status is that of a holy man of God. And so she asks her husband to arrange for a room to be built with walls. I'm pretty sure that's what that means. Let's arrange for him to have a roof with walls. (laughs) That they're going to build something onto their house so that it can be a permanent room for Elisha to actually come. Whenever he comes through, passes through Shunem, that he, and he's on his journey, that he can turn in there and rest and make use of the table, the chair, the lamp. The stand-up desk, the laptop, the, you know. Hospitality is an important act of love and service that Christians are commanded to engage in. We're told in places like 1 Peter 4, 9 to show hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, but also in Hebrews 13, 2 to be hospitable to strangers. And so that's always something that we ought to be thinking about. How can you show hospitality? Even if you don't own your own house, or if you're sharing your house with us, how can you, as a Christian, be hospitable to others? And on the flip side, how are you receiving hospitality from others? See, we we often hear that we ought to go and show hospitality as as part of our discipleship of Christ. But how how often are you willing and ready to receive that hospitality? In our culture, in our Australian culture, we don't like to impose on others. And so we'll often, you know, even if somebody tells us directly, no, it's fine, you can come. Uh, I'd love for you. And you go, oh, no, 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 I don't want to. We we come with our own reasons. Think about it. If nobody received hospitality, then nobody would be able to show it. 
So let me encourage us to not let our cultural instincts stop us from receiving the hospitality from a brother or sister in Christ and enable them to show it. Well, Elisha, the man of God, certainly wasn't afraid of doing that, was he? Let's read from verse 11 what happens next. One day he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. Uh, now, first of all, let's get the awkward things out of the way first from this encounter. F firstly, uh, call this Shunammite. Might sound rude to us, but it's basically the same thing as like a boss saying to an employee, hey, uh, go and get the guy from accounting. Yeah, that's basically it. Secondly, I have no idea why Elisha summons the Shunammite woman to his room and then speaks to her through Gehazi, even though she's standing right there. I, I don't know. It might be because of a cultural reason. Uh, after all, we would understand some of those similar cultural dynamics today. In, in Aboriginal culture, there are certain relationships that are considered taboo and so they can't speak to some people. But obviously this is different because in the next verse, Elisha then just talks directly to her. I don't, we don't know. There's, there might be some kind of cultural background going on there. But whatever the reason, Elijah asks, Elisha asks his question of her. He says, you've gone to all this trouble. You've, you've remodeled your entire house for us. How can we repay you? And Elisha here assumes that he's able to put in a good word with, you know, the two most powerful people in Israel, the king and the commander of the army. And, you know, that's, that might seem a little bit like, geez, that's pretty presumptuous, don't you think? Actually, it's not an unreasonable assumption because uh, in chapter 8 of 2 Kings, Gehazi, we see, is talking to the king about Elisha. And then, ironically, this same Shunammite woman turns up with a request for the king and tells this story that we're about to uh, embark on. So, yeah, Elisha probably actually could have done that. But how does this woman respond here to Elisha's offer for a reward? She says, I dwell among my own people. This is another way of saying, I am secure. I have everything I need. You, you don't need to give me anything. I lack nothing. Well, she is wealthy, after all. We already know that. And especially to our modern minds, it may sound like, well... We think, oh yeah, well she's speaking the truth. She has everything she needs because she can buy everything she needs. But we read on for verse 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. And Gehazi has uh, obviously come across this piece of information either through observation or conversation. And for us as readers of the Bible, this ought to make our ears prick up. Does this sound familiar? 
Genesis 17, 17 records Abraham laughing at the thought of him having a child because he was so old. And my favorite in Romans 4, 19 describes him as being so old that he was as good as dead. (laughs) He's well beyond fathering years. This woman is in the same situation as Abraham and Sarah were. The very ones to whom the promise of a great nation was given by God. The very ones who received that promise, as Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith. By faith. And this Shunammite woman's faith in this moment is absolutely on display. She said, I have no need of anything. This is a remarkable statement because in the ancient world, not having a son, it wasn't just difficult for for social and emotional reasons. It certainly was that. We see that with other barren women in the Old Testament like Sarah, Rebecca, and Hannah. But it was also difficult for economic reasons. As one scholar says, in a patriarchal society, a son is a sine qua non. That is something that is absolutely necessary for a secure life. A son guaranteed economic security. Think think about it as a son was a woman's superannuation. The son would inherit the family property and he would take care of his mother. And so a woman without a son could be seen as a woman who may have actually been cursed by God, just as Rachel was, uh, was, was in that situation. And so the fact that the Shunammite woman here requests nothing from Elisha indicates that, well, she either just disagrees and thinks, oh, I'm rich enough, I'll be fine. Or she has great faith. I don't think it's the former, because as we'll see, she obviously would love to have a son. I think this is a response that is birthed out of her great faith and out of her commitment to the Lord. Do you have this kind of faith and contentment in God? Do you have this kind of peace? The kind that is able to say, God, even if the thing my heart desires the most in this life is denied to me by you, I dwell among my own people. You have made me secure. I have everything I need in you. Elisha calls her back in which means that he wasn't having this conversation with her present. And this time he speaks to her directly in verse 16. And he says, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring. As Elisha had said to her. Once again, the parallels here to Genesis are just absolutely unmistakable. With the language looking very similar to Genesis 18, 14 and Genesis 21, 2. 
And we see in the Shunammite woman's response that, as I mentioned, this is obviously a big deal to her. Do not lie to your servant. That, that's, it's, it's basically like saying, don't promise to me something that, that's just going to get my hopes up. Don't promise to me something that is so great and that just might not happen. But the word of the Lord is sure. It will happen. What he says will come about. And even when our hope might be frail, even when we might struggle to believe that the things he says really will come true, even if we try to shield ourselves from from asking for things from God because we're afraid of disappointment, praise God that he remains faithful to his word. What he has promised, he will bring to life. What he has said will come true. What feels like frail hope to you in your life right now? Now, I want to be clear about something here. It's important to know that what God has promised is not things that we, our own preferences that we just want to baptize and and, and say as though, hey, yeah, God has promised me this, so he's going to give it to me. I've known many people who become disillusioned with God because he never gave them things that they thought he promised when the reality was he had never promised it. This is especially true when it comes to life circumstances like how long we'll live for or whether we're going to be successful or whether we're going to get married. James 4, 14 to 15 makes it clear that none of our life circumstances are guaranteed. And that is why we say, Lord willing. That is why I should have said yesterday to Brayden instead of, hey, see you tomorrow, Lord willing, see you tomorrow. But you know, it's important for us not to get so caught up in the sovereignty of God that we forget that he is good even in the small things. Not only does he show us that goodness in Jesus on the cross, and the thing that, that, that is the greatest gift that he could give to any of us. No, he actually is the giver of every good gift. In a room that we can meet in, that beeps occasionally. In things that even he hasn't promised to us, he still gives them. Because he is a good father. As James 1.17 says, he, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. I think it'll just keep going, Darren. Don't worry about it. Until it finishes in a few seconds. Do you recognize those good gifts of God's grace in your life? Can you see The things that your heavenly father has given to you, even though he has not promised them to you, but he gives them to you because he delights in you, because he loves you. Even when you feel frail, even when you feel like your hope and your faith in God is weak, even when you feel like you're beaten down and things aren't as you would like them to be. Are you able to see that 
in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of an alarm that won't stop beeping, he still gives you good gifts. Yeah, I think just leave it, man. It usually stops. I mean, I'm going to pray and ask that God will help you to remain focused. And I'm sure he'll give you that good gift. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, he gives good gifts. Even if you're struggling through a difficult time that feels like there's no hope. Find peace in knowing that he is a good father. That not only has he given you his only son to save you, he delights to give you good things. And yes, sometimes those good things are discipline and persecution in order to grow you in righteousness. But he also delights to give you many blessings that perhaps you can't see right now. I mean, we all know this feeling, surely. We all know that feeling that sometimes the world is so dim, it feels like the Father of lights has actually decided to keep us in the dark. That sometimes we feel like maybe God has promised us heaven, and that's great, but right now it feels like He's going to make the rest of our lives a living hell. Brothers and sisters, most often in those dark times, it's not that God isn't giving us any good and gracious gifts. It's simply that in the darkness of our situation, we are unable to see them. And if you're in that position right now, let me encourage you, speak with another Christian. Ask them to remind you of the goodness and of the promises of God and that his promises are sure. That his word is never failing, that his steadfast love endures forever. That he is not a stingy father who cares more about his wallet than he does about you. That he is a father who loves to shower his children with good gifts. And even and if you're not in that right now, if you're not in the valley of the shadow of death, let me encourage you, let me urge you, remind yourself of these truths now. Pray the word. Preach it to your own heart so that when you do feel like your hope is frail, when you do feel like the world is collapsing in around you, that you have a deep well of truth and assurance of God's goodness to draw from. Because in our darkest hour, there is only one hope that we can turn to. There is only one that we can trust to give us peace. You see, this was a wonderful moment of joy, I'm sure, for the Shunammite woman. To receive this promise and then to have that promise fulfilled. A moment of enjoying one of God's good and gracious gifts in the new life of her son. But her darkest hour was yet to come. Let's read on from verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. Many years later, this boy, the child of promise, 
The one who was given as a miraculous gift, suddenly, unexpectedly, seemingly without warning, due to an unknown cause, is now dead. Talk about devastation. Can you imagine what must have gone through this mother's mind? God, why? Why? Is this not the boy that you gave to me supernatural? Supernaturally? Did I ask for him? Why would you give me such a precious and wonderful gift only to then pierce my heart and take him away from me? Why? Surely we can relate to this too. Even if we haven't had children. And once again, many have shipwrecked their faith in this. Prayers that they have prayed for many years. Finally answered. Only to see them seemingly ripped away from them again. John Piper's son, Abraham Piper, was excommunicated by their church when he was 19 years old. Told everybody that he walked away from the faith. And yet four years later, he seemed to return to Christ and was welcomed back into the church. You can imagine the joy and the thankfulness that his parents must have had in that moment. You can imagine that just like the prodigal son's father when he returned, I'm sure they would have praised God with the same words that he used, saying, my son was dead, but now he's alive again. And yet, since that joyful, emotional day, Abraham Piper has overtly walked away again. Thanks to him. He now has a huge social media following on TikTok where he maligns the Christian faith. He points out what he considers to be significant flaws in it. And you can imagine the grief that that must cause his parents and those who love him. And yet, in the same way that the Shunammite woman's son was not promised a long life. So the Bipers have not been promised that their children will follow in their footsteps of faith. In the midst of sorrow and tragedy, in the midst of the darkest Night. That is a hard truth. That doesn't feel comforting at all. It feels like telling a beggar who comes to your house to go outside and sleep on the concrete rather than welcoming him in. But you know, even though That's a truth that doesn't feel 
warm and squishy. <laughs> when, when the seas are rough, when the waves are high, that is a truth that is an immovable, unchangeable rock that will keep you standing, that will keep you up, even as wave after wave after wave of tragedy and sorrow and suffering pounds you. And when we grasp this, when we plant our feet on solid ground, when we can stand on the solid rock, then we will be able to lift our drooping heads, to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees and to cry out in desperation and in faith to our God, knowing that He alone brings the dead to life, knowing that He alone brings the spiritually dead to spiritual life, knowing that He alone is sovereign over the universe, knowing that He is good and that He gives good gifts. And we'll be able to cry out to him. Let our hope in our trust in him, even if these aren't the good gifts that we would choose. In the midst of perhaps the worst thing that the Shunammite woman has ever experienced in her life. We see glimpses of her faith. Verse 21. We see that significantly she goes and she lays her dead son up on Elisha's bed in the spare room that they made for him. She doesn't wail loudly and announce to everybody that her son is dead. She doesn't begin proceedings for funeral preparations, no. It's clear that by laying him on Elisha's bed, she has in mind to go to the man of God. And she knows that no one will disturb her son's body there. And of course, that's exactly what she does. She sends a message to her husband to urgently get her a servant and a donkey so that she can go and see Elisha. And his response is is interesting. Let's read it in verse 23. Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. If you're unfamiliar, the the Sabbath was the one day of rest for Israelites in the week where they wouldn't work. And the new moon was a once a month festival where, again, no one would work. So it probably makes sense that people perhaps went and saw the holy man on these days. And so being a work day, the husband wonders what the deal is and... You know, interestingly, it doesn't seem to arouse any suspicion for him to think that maybe his son's head complaint and uh, his wife's request to see Elisha is connected. And the Shunammite woman here in her response to her husband again indicates to us her great faith. All is well. All is well. That may seem strange to us, not just because she's just experienced the worst thing ever. 
But the original Hebrew word that she says behind this is one that, if you've been around church for a little while, might be familiar to you. And that is, of course, the word shalom. Shalom, you know, English translations is most often translated as peace. But the meaning of it goes beyond our normal understanding of peace. You see, peace to us is usually uh, used to describe something which has an absence of conflict, like in a war. Seeking peace in the Middle East means seeking no more wars and missiles being um, launched against each other. But in Hebrew thought, shalom was a more all-encompassing idea that included a sense of, of wholeness and of completeness. Peace in Hebrew thought is not like Buddhist peace, which comes from nothingness, which comes from emptying yourself from all cares of the world. No, in, in, in Hebrew thought, if anything, it is the opposite of that. Peace is fullness, everything being in order the way that it should be. That is peace. That is the sense of what this woman says with this response. All is well. All is well because she is whole. How could she say this? How could she just lose her only son given miraculously by God and then say, Shalom. Perhaps you might say, well, she knew, maybe she knew that God was going to raise him. Maybe. But given the way that she acts throughout this whole thing, I reckon she had a depth of trust in God that gave her peace and wholeness even in the shadow of death. And no matter the outcome, she had peace in God. Now, was she perfect and unmoved in her emotion? No. And we'll see that. And it's not a bad thing to mourn death like we talked about a couple of years ago. But underneath that frailty and underneath the struggle of dealing with her son's death, we see a solid rock. And so she saddles up her donkey and again, showing urgency, she makes for Mount Carmel. In this site, uh, one, of, of one of Elijah's most significant miracles, which we saw a few weeks ago in calling down fire on the altar, was probably Elisha's base of operations. Let's read what happens from halfway through verse 25. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. Elisha sends Gehazi to ask her what? A smattering of shaloms. He basically says, are you shalom? Is your husband shalom? Is your son shalom? To which she replies, of course, shalom. This is a good thing for us to consider in our own conversations. We can learn from the Hebrew language by pushing past pleasantries in our relationships. Taking initiative in asking, not just, hey, how's it going? But are you happy in Jesus? Do you have peace in Him? Is the woman lying when she replies, shalom? No. 
she herself is at peace. But she will go directly to the man of God. Which she does. She comes before Elisha and she falls at his feet and grabs hold of them in a sign of humble submission. Something that Jesus' disciples would do after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 9. And even though Gehazi tries to push her out of the way as though she was being a nuisance to Elisha, Elisha sees that she is clearly in bitter distress. And interestingly, Elisha here says that the Lord has hidden from him and has not told him the reason why she is in such great sorrow. And this is our first glimpse in the passage of the fact that Elisha actually isn't some kind of magician, you know, that possesses, possesses special powers that he can just call up at will. No, everything that he does and everything that he has comes from the Lord. It only happens because the Lord wills it to. Elisha is an instrument. Let's read the woman's words in verse 28. She says, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say... Do not deceive me. Interestingly, her words aren't actually exactly the same as in verse 16, where she says, do not lie to me. It very well may be that her pain has, has pushed her to heighten these words. But what's clear in this woman's response is that the joy of life has given way to the bitter pain of death. It's almost like she's saying, why would you build my hopes up so high only to tear them down to lower than I was before? As the Psalms and many other parts of the Bible teach us, there is a rawness and honesty before God that is not sinful. We grieve the consequences of the fall in our our world. Woe that is in line with God's word is an appropriate response. Elisha immediately understands and he also responds to her with urgency. He tells Gehazi to take his staff and gather up his cloak and race back to the child as quickly as he can. Don't even stop to talk to anybody. The mission is that urgent that you need to have a singular focus. And yet the mother is not convinced that this is what is needed. In verse 30 she says something that I reckon Elisha just might have recognized. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Does that sound familiar? Wait a second, Elisha must have thought. I think I've heard that before. I think I've heard it come out of my own mouth. Three times precisely. And when I said it, I said it in faith. There must be something in this. So he arose and followed her. And while they're on their way back to Shunem, Gehazi meets them on the way to give a report of how the staff on the face trick went. Which, of course, is a big fat thumbs down. Now, I'm with you on this. I have no idea why Elisha did it. 
Maybe he knew that it wasn't going to work and he was just making a point to show that this, this kind of thing doesn't work. To try and counter superstitions, perhaps. Maybe he was sending Gehazi on a trip the same way that some tradies will send apprentices to the shop for a long wait. Maybe he was acting presumptively and did something that God hadn't actually commanded him to. I, I don't know. But whatever he was thinking, it clearly wasn't the way that God intended to bring life to the boy. And there would be one crucial difference between the staff on face and the face on face. And we see that in the next couple of verses. Let's read from verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. The key difference that we see between these two attempts to bring the boy to life, Elisha prayed. As I'm sure he knows, but is pointed out here for our benefit, no miracles, no raising of the dead to life, nothing happens in our own power. We don't have the power of life and death in our hands. Even though people seek to find the key to everlasting life, even though humans try to fight death, even though we try to develop technology to delay it, it is ultimately not in our hands. It's in God's. We see that so clearly in this passage. God has the power to create life by giving a son to this woman, even though her husband's body was as good as dead. And we're about to see it right here again, when he graciously grants life back to her son. And he does so through Elisha doing something which is honestly difficult to understand. Elisha lays down on the child an act that uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 would do something similar to with another dead boy. And Elisha will put his mouth on the boy's mouth, his eyes to his eyes, his hands to his hands. And the boy's body becomes warm. And he gets up, he walks around, he comes back and he does the same thing. Now, in case you're wondering, this isn't some kind of primitive CPR going on, okay? I think that's pretty clear in the text. It is possible that there is a background of, of, of magical practices in this region which did similar things to try and bring about healing, hand-to-hand, -hand, that kind of stuff, and that Elisha is actually intentionally countering that by showing that it is only the Lord who holds the power of life. That's a possibility. And, of course, why it happens in two stages, again, we don't, we don't know. There are a few questions around some of these things about why Elisha does what he does and why God uses these particular means to bring the life uh, back to the boy. But none of those questions... None of those uncertainties around that change the fact that it is the Lord himself who brings life to the boy. 
The child sneezes seven times and he opens his eyes. Sneezing, is, this is basically the only time in the Bible when it, when it comes up. I think the seven indicates here completion and fullness. His breath has come back to him. He sneezes seven times. As, as you might be familiar in the Bible, seven usually means fullness, completeness, like it does in the seven days of creation. God has fully brought back to life the Shunammite woman's son. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to wonder if this thing, this animation is fake. You don't have to wonder if it's, if it's not a real resurrection. No, he is alive and he is whole. And so Elisha gets Gehazi to bring the woman in. And, he, and, and the whole story comes full circle by Elisha using those same words that he spoke when he first brought her the blessing of life. And he now once again brings her the blessing of life, telling her to pick up her son. It is only the Lord who gives life. It is only the Lord who gives real life. And that means fullness of life now, in the here and now, and in eternal life beyond death. And now it's time for us to bring it full circle. Do you know that the Lord is the only one who gives real life? Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables, said, It is nothing to die. It is frightful not to live. It's basically the same as what E.E. Cummins was trying to say. And that's more true than he realized. But like him, all of us are constantly searching for real life. And far too often we seek it in the wrong places. We seek peace and security and faith and real life in places other than where it can be truly found. Don't we? Don't we seek faith in something that, that feels alive and vibrant? Or perhaps sometimes don't we seek faith in, in, in ticking off a list of religious duties that we can say, yep, done those, I have faith. Don't we seek wholeness and, and peace in a life that is absent of conflict, absence of difficulty? Don't we seek real life in, in that, that feeling, that moment when Jack stood on the bow of the Titanic and said, I'm the king of the world! Or something analogous to it? Don't we look everywhere other than the very one 
the only one who gives real life with a word of his mouth? As we read in Luke 7, around 2,000 years ago on the other side of the hill of Moray, in a town called Nain, a prophet named Jesus would encounter another woman, a widow whose only son had died. And he would not need to pray to the Lord to bring him to life. He would simply say, young man, I say to you, arise. Just as the Lord's words give life, so do Jesus's. He is God. And it is in him that the resurrection of the widow's son in 1 Kings 17 and the resurrection of the Shunammite woman's son that we have just read about find their fulfillment. Because Jesus himself gives real life to all who come to him. To him. For every single one who comes to him recognizing that they are dead in their sin. And that they need to be raised to life through faith in Christ Jesus. He will not turn them away. In case you're wondering, if you're here this morning, you do not believe that. Christians, we don't believe this stuff because we we can't deal with the idea of dying. Because we're afraid of death. Jesus isn't just one of the many ways to to really live, to, to find meaning and purpose in life. We're not just so desperate to find that meaning that we'll just latch onto anything that we can find. If you don't believe me, if that's not you, I implore you to investigate that. I urge you with as much urgency as the Shunammite woman and Elisha had when they sought to bring her dead son to life. Think about death and then consider where real life comes from. Because you see, this isn't just a matter of life and death. It's also a matter of real life and real death. Because for the person who chooses to remain dead in their sin instead of coming to Christ for life, for that person, death is an exit door. And it is an exit door in a way that is far worse than any of us could imagine. Rejection of God does not just result in sweet nothingness after death. It will result in an eternity of God's wrath and judgment. But for those who put their faith in Jesus, the present life is like hanging out on the monorail to Disney. It's great, sure, we enjoy the view, have nice conversations, we like the people. But death is the gate through which We pass into a world more incredible, more amazing than you or I could ever imagine. Is that how you feel about life, about death, and about eternity? 
Hebrews 11 shows how all the Old Testament saints, from Abel to Abraham, from Sarah to Samson, all lived by faith. But what they had faith for and what they had hope in was not simply receiving the good earthly things that God had promised to them, which he gave. Not simply just a resurrection in this life. No. As verse 16 of Hebrews 11 tells us, they desired a heavenly country, a celestial city. They did not receive what was promised because the promised one who would finally fulfill every promise had not yet arrived. The one named Jesus. And who is counted in this great hall of faith? These two women. Yes, the Shunammite woman received her son back from the dead physically. But there was a better promise yet to come in the Son of Man. The one who would not just reverse death temporarily, but the one who would raise, reverse death finally. Christian, are you seeking real life in Jesus? Does your joy and anticipation of eternal life break into this present life? How does your hope in the resurrection of Jesus and knowing that he has promised the same for you change your life today? Does it increase your faith in the midst of a hostile world? Does it give you faith to see that he is a good father of lights even when the valley is dark? Does the hope of the resurrection fill you with peace? Knowing that our present troubles are but a mist, a mist and that they will one day be gone with the wind? Does it remind you that even though we so often seek real life in the here and now in earthly things that the only one who truly gives it is Jesus himself. Is he your only hope in life and death? Brothers and sisters, we are weak and frail, but he is strong and good. Look to him, turn to him, trust in him. Fall at his feet in humble submission and in worship, just as the Shunammite woman did when she received God's gracious gift. How will knowing that God alone is the giver of real life change your life today? Let's pray.
our Lord. You see us. You see us in our frailty, in our weakness. And you graciously love us. You graciously give us blessings over and over that we do not deserve. And yet you have also given us the greatest gift in giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross, to live the perfect life that we could never live, and to take on our sin so that we might receive his righteousness on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we anticipate and look forward to the eternal life that is to come, that that would not just be something that we think is far off and has nothing to do with our lives now, but that we would live today in light of eternity. Father, please keep us from seeking hope and peace and joy and life in this life and in the things of this world. May Christ be our only hope in life and in death. In his name we pray. Amen.